Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today my guest is author John Erickson. John is a journalist with over 30 years experience working at daily newspapers in Illinois and Ohio. A prominent reporter in local news, John led the coverage in three stories that earned him a nomination for a Pulitzer Prize, including a series that won a Pulitzer for national reporting in 1998. His recently published book, When Mortals Play God, Eugenics and One Family's Story of Tragedy, Loss and Perseverance, is a story of four generations of his family that have been impacted by atrocious interference from local government, which resulted in his grandmother, Rose DeShane, being a victim of a eugenics birth control programme. This is not a sad story, but one of triumph and happiness, despite the loss of tragedy that happens along the way. I had a great conversation with John, so I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. John, hi, how are you? Thank you for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. John, you got in touch with me um, and I did have a little shout out because I do about 10 or 15 episodes and I think it wouldn't be great if I could just get, you know, kind of um, a a jewel in the crown sort of thing or a lost, uh, you know, the pin in the haystack. And uh, I just throw it out. And sometimes you get a lot of people who are not really suited to the podcast, but you contacted me and from your email, the minute I read it, I went... Yeah, this is the one. It's a fantastic book. The book is called When Mortals Play God. And it's about your own family and also about a program that was initiated in the early part of the 20th 20th century. Um, It was a eugenics program, suffice to say. And uh, it had a detrimental effect on the history of your family and the tree that grew after the, the original incidents around it. Maybe for our listeners, and we can give them a brief so that we can they can get straight into understanding what the story is about. If you had a couple of minutes, maybe you could just tell me, John, what your motivation behind writing the book was and a little bit about the people in the book, namely your because your family who are over three or four generations, you go through the book and it's, it's a wonderful book. So could you give me a couple of minutes and tell me that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, but I didn't set out to write a book. What uh, my mother came to me and wanted to find her father who had ab- abandoned them when she was, you know, less than a year old. And, and, uh, so I did some research on him and, and, uh, was able to find out some things. And, and then she said, well, I'd also like you to find my younger brother. And, uh, up until that point, I, I didn't even know she had a younger brother. She had never talked about him. And, and, uh, so I, so I set out to find him. His name was Robert. And in the course of doing that, uh, he he had died uh, back in the early 90s. But in the course of researching him, I found that my grandmother had been part of this whole uh, eugenics craze that swept the country and and uh, caught up a lot of people in it. And and unfortunately, she was one of them. And so I started researching what happened to her and what happened to her children and it led to this story and and i realized that there was just a lot here and and so that's when i decided to write the book so the book is about what happened to her and and kind of what happened after what happened to her because some 
pretty horrible things uh, took place, and 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 but also, you know, in the end, uh, I I realized that really this is kind of a story of triumph in some ways because there were a lot of survivors that came out of it, and it was the survivors that really turned this whole eugenics thing on its head. Yeah. So your grandmother's name is Rose, and your mum's name is Millie. Have I got those names right? You do. And the story goes goes back a little bit further. It goes back to maybe the end of the uh, 19th century. And you talk about your great-grandmother, Mary. There's a good few chapters devoted to her in the book. Uh, she just comes across as the typical rock within a family. Am I correct in Absolutely. assuming that? Absolutely. Uh, my mother would not be... My mother is 101 years old. She, she would not be here if not for uh, her grandmother, her her grandmother raised her pretty much, and and uh, and raised a lot of other people too, and 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 also she encountered all kinds of hardship on her, you know, in her own family, and and uh, withstood it, and and it's really a testament of strength, um, in her case for sure. No, your family was based in. I think I'm getting the right the right name of this the town Brannard, is it? Brainerd, yeah, Brainerd, Minnesota, which was a it was a railroad town. The Northern Pacific Railroad originally set up its uh, its headquarters in that town, and uh, this was back in the early twentieth century, and and uh, and they were building railroads all over the place, and and uh, uh, they wanted to build a transcontinental railroad to the west coast. Minnesota's smack in the middle of the country, so this would have covered half of the United States. And they put their headquarters there, and there were all kinds of jobs, and they imported people from all over the world, uh, a lot from Europe, Russia, Canada. They all came to this small town in Minnesota, uh, including uh, my ancestors who uh, set up shop there, and that's kind of where the story starts. That's the the Shane family, is that right? Have I pronounced that name correctly? That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. No, okay. So they originally came from France, but did they come, am I correct in assuming they came via Canada? Was there some connection with Canada as well? Yeah, they, they came from this small town in Canada. And uh, back then there was a huge migration of Canadians to the United States. And, uh, and they were uh, loggers, um, woodsmen. And... Uh, there were a lot of jobs in that industry as well. And so they all ended up in, in Brainerd, Minnesota. Um, and, you know, the story begins with, uh, you know, kind of uh, my my great-grandmother, uh, Mary. She, um, she was the matriarch and uh, had this huge family. And Rose was uh, her eighth or ninth child. Um, and Rose grew up, uh, without, uh, any education for the most part, all her brothers and sisters went to school. She did not. And the reason was they didn't have to, you know, educate people who had, uh, mental challenges. Uh, she was labeled, uh, feeble minded at a very young age. And, uh, this was a label that stuck with her pretty much her whole life and, and uh, it was why she was put in an institution, uh, because, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, that uh, uh, with the eugenics movement, they thought that if somebody had behavioral issues or mental issues, that it would extend to all of their family members. Right. And of course, Mary, your great-grandmother, fought this 
she fought it like with a passion that's never known to a woman. But of course, it, at that time, um, you know, it's easy now to look back on that and say, oh, you know, they had too many children or, you know, you really you should have realized that your your daughter had issues. Um, why didn't you protect her better? But the system was constantly working against them, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if you were abnormal in any way, and, and you got to bear in mind, this was a pretty small town. Yes, exactly. And that's what I was going to say to you, John. Sorry for jumping in on you. But that is so Irish as well. You know, once somebody becomes, you know, there's an issue with somebody in your family, you cannot escape the gossip. You can't escape the finger pointing them. Right. There, there just wasn't the infrastructure to help these people. And, and I, you know, I knew Rose. Uh, uh, she died when I was like 13 years old. And, and I remember vividly going over to her house on many occasions. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I've also looked at, at some letters that she wrote her son, and they do not appear to be the work of somebody who is feeble-minded. Now, it's possible somebody wrote them for her. I don't know. But uh, I think what happened here is, is she was different. And uh, she was kind of a wild kid, and, and that was not tolerated. And because of that, uh, she was basically punished. Yeah, and the thing is, I mean, nowadays that would probably be recognized and you would have an assistant teacher or assistant, um, you know, who would help kids because that happens in my local school. We have kids who have ADHD or maybe light, uh, or light autism and, you know, they, they live and they work and they go to school in the same society that we do. A couple of my friends, um, I found out later on in life were, were, were diagnosed as having autism. I would have never known that. But I would have known them right, as kids right. that they were maybe a little bit wild or a bit funny or very special. They might have had a very good talent, for example, which we were really jealous of when we were kids. But as you say, John, back then, it was the negativity that was being focused on rather than the positivity. Absolutely. And and she was also promiscuous. And uh, uh, the reason she was institutionalized in the first place is two people testified that she was, uh, quote unquote, immoral. All right. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a vague term and and uh and but uh she was basically institutionalized for for almost 6 years and uh uh and during that time one of her all three of her children were sent to an orphanage and and one of them was adopted and she never saw him again. Can we just stick with Mary and Rose maybe for a minute? What was the relationship like between them? I mean, did Mary, you know, was she, did she find that she was having to devote more time with Rose or was it just that her life on her own was so difficult? Because she lost her first husband quite, well, they had a long time, didn't they? But he, he died a, a good while before she passed away. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, uh, she married two other times and <laughs> um one of them did not go very well, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, you know, I, she had a lot of kids, and from what I and from what my mother has described, uh, it was almost like a rooming house. I mean, uh, she was taking in boarders. I, I think I used the term in the book, taking in boarders, as if they were stray cats, and and yeah. there, was, there was there were day beds all over the the house, and and um, she just had a big heart. And uh, and she, you know, fiercely defended her family, and and uh, and that included Rose. Uh, she fought hard for Rose, and and um, you know, uh, <laughs> it's just it's just a, sh a shame that uh, she had to 
to en- encounter so much hardship. But in some ways, she came out of it at the very end of her life quite content. She she didn't lose her family in like way so many people do. She always kind of stayed in touch with Rose, didn't she? She did, yeah. And um, now she died before I was born, so I never met her. But uh, uh, from what my mother has, my mother has very, very fond memories of her. And uh, what happened is uh, my mother uh, and her older brother, well, my mother was was released from the orphanage uh, quite early because she had a disease called rickets, which is a nutritional deficiency. And so she spent a very short time in the orphanage. Um, The younger brother uh robert he he was adopted out and and you know know, disappeared basically from the family forever and then but the older brother was spent two years there and part of my research in the book is that this was a orphanage in which priests were later found to have preyed on children uh sexually abused children and uh you know i have no idea if that happened to ernie but he came out of it kind of an angry young man and uh, he uh, had had a pretty troubled life. So, um, and I'm sure we'll get into that too. But uh, uh, anyway, Ernie and my mom were were ended up getting out of the orphanage, and uh, Rose was in and out of the institution by this time. And so, it was Mary who really raised my mother. And uh, in fact, the first ten years of of her life, she. She saw her mother, you know, almost never. And of course, you know, you speak about Rose there. There was the, the, she was in, I think she came into the institutions on two major occasions. Am I right in thinking that, remembering that? That's right. Uh, actually three. Three, yeah. She was, yeah, she was institutionalized three times. And and then, you know, we're, we're going to talk about, because this is the, the main issue within the story. This is where, you know, the, the path in your family changed because she was, cajoled, I suppose is a word, it could be light word to say, but I'm sure there's more sinister words you could use, into taking on this idea that if she took part in this eugenics program, in other words, if she was sterilized, she could leave the institution. That's right. You know, and when you think about it, they they sterilized people because they, they didn't want their uh, defective gene to spread throughout society. That was basically the concept of eugenics. And yet, when you're sterilized, you're immediately released. So, so, uh, and and uh, so obviously, it wasn't their their brains they were concerned about; it was their bodies. So, um, uh, yeah, she was sterilized and and released, and 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 you know, I don't think you know there were too many people that that took her under their wing to, to try to steer her into a right direction. So she ended up getting in trouble and getting put back into the institution. And I've looked at the rules that, that they had back then. And, and uh, you know, one of the things you couldn't consort with men. Um, if you did, you would get put back into the institution. So what I'm listening to when I'm speaking to you when I read this book, the one thing that came into my mind was that this was never about the welfare of people like Rose. This was about some sort of moral high ground that a minority of people, you know, in a position of power were taking uh, through ignorance and through, you know, control, really. Uh, you know, they they were using the 
you know, the Christian faith, so to speak, to to impart this kind of superior idea where if you had any kind of issue, whether it be a learning disability or even a physical disability, you know, this was this was frowned upon and oh we just have to it was like it was like a scientific version, John, or a medical version of sweeping it under the carpet, if you know what I mean. And yet, you know, America, you know, even back then uh, we call it, you know, the bastion of democracy. And, you know, we look at countries like, say, what, what was happening during the Nazi regime. And while this, while this uh, eugenics program couldn't, you know, we could never say it's in the same, you know, bracket of, of horror as the Nazis. But, you know, when I read your book, I said to myself, well, this was, n- this was never a good idea. It was never going to be a good idea. And all it's done is have a huge black mark on the development of mental health, which is probably... I mean, some people are still alive who suffered from this. So the effects are still being, you know, felt in families across the United States and obviously across the world as well. So it truly was a horrific concept. Yeah, one one of the reasons I wanted to to tell the story is, you know, there's been there's been some great books written on eugenics. I did I don't know of a single one that had like the personal. Um, that had really gone into the impact on on families, and uh, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize just how widespread this thing was, and and all the major intellectuals of the day, well, not most of them anyway, climbed on board, and and Oliver Wendell Holmes was the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in the late twenties, and and he had this famous quote that said, uh, uh, three generations of imbeciles are enough." And, uh, um, and, but, but, you know, and, and that, that's an incredible quote, uh, and, and a horrific one, but, uh, a lot of people felt the same way. The Supreme Court decision that sanctioned, uh, uh, eugenic sterilization and allowed all these states to, a lot of states by that time had already adopted these laws, including Minnesota, where my family is from. But, um, there was a real worry that, it was what they were doing was unconstitutional. So they found this test case out of Virginia and uh, it went before the US Supreme Court. Uh, the decision was eight to one. And uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes was the chief justice and he wrote the, the you know, landmark, you know, ruling. Um, but, you know, when you read the quotes of people from, you know, that era, they were all along those same lines, you know, uh, uh, three generations of imbeciles are enough. And the similarities between what's, what's happening in the United States and what happened here in Ireland is is kind of uncanny. We didn't have a eugenics program, but what we did have was we had the Catholic Church effectively running workhouses for women who, yeah, exactly what you're saying, everyone, they were considered amoral or, you know, um, untrustworthy and all that kind of thing. And they were working in these huge laundries that were, you know, getting a huge amount of money for having like hotels nearby and all of these places getting their their laundry all done very cheap. And they had these young girls who might have had children out of wedlock or, as you say, were, you know, not considered to be moral. And uh, then the other thing is their children was taken away from them. And, you know, even today we have issues where children had been in orphanages and so many of them had actually been taken to the United States illegally. They were bought basically by families in the United States and they've never been able to, the vast majority of the children have never been located. Uh, And then the other issue is that, of course, 
any ch- children that died in the orphanage, their records of their death sometimes is not even recorded and they were just buried in a kind of mass graves. And the, the there was there's a, there was a major one recently in Galway in Ireland because they had um somebody had purchased the land and they'd realized that there was the possibility of a mass grave of children, John. So I think at this time this seemed to be a, a huge problem where the devaluation of people uh, with special needs or or you know mental issues in the community was just a, a horrific case of control and and as you say remove well what happened and you know and when you talk about mass graves you know i guess uh uh you know my mom and her brothers were were lucky because that never happened to them but um uh what what we got really lucky in doing this research um i had heard about uh i finally found out where the orphanage was that took a long time and uh because my mom she just knew that she was in an orphanage she didn't know where it was and and so and there were a bunch of them in in the state at that time and so anyway i find, finally found out which one it was and and uh, i called it and they had long since closed and so i called them up and said you know i, I you know was this saint james catholic orphanage was the name of it i said was that located there and they said yeah you know it was you know, closed a long time ago, but yeah, that's the same building. And I said, well, would it be okay if I brought my mom up there? And, uh, you know, just to, you know, have her walk the halls, you know, I thought that would be kind of cool. You know, she hadn't been there for 80 years, you know, and, and so they said, okay, sure. You know, they warned against high expectations. So anyway, I arranged it all. We met my brother up there and, and, uh, and we got there and, and, one of the administrators said, how much time do you have? And I said, I got all the time you got, you know, and she had gone down in the basement. She was kind of took by the story and went down into the basement. They still had these, the records of everybody who had been through the place. And they were these huge books. And, uh, you know, we were paging, we spent hours paging through these books and it was stuff that would be on a spreadsheet today. Like, when they got there, you know, what their weight was, you know, what their height was, you know, did they have any birth, any marks on them? Why were they there? You know, all kinds of stuff that, you know, was incredible. It was an incredible find. And one thing that I did have that I wouldn't have got anywhere else was the two people who adopted Robert, um, my mom's younger brother and my uncle. And so I was able to trace a little bit of his history uh by you know tracking down that family so you, you were lucky in a sense that that was that's what kick-started your search and you know um maybe we can move on to some of the children that the children of rose um i think we had robert as you said you had your mom millie and then ernie is ernie you you tell a good story about ernie and it's kind of I, as I was reading it, I didn't know and I didn't do any research because I wanted to read the book, you know, and not have to pick off something that's on Wikipedia or go searching. So I had no idea what was what Ernie's story was until obviously you told it. And, um, you know, when I look back and I read the story, I said to myself, again, it was a situation where, you know, Ernie obviously had issues probably from his, as you said, it may have stemmed from his time in the orphanage. He may have been physically or sexually abused, whatever. Um and, you know, that can have a, a dramatic impact on people. And Ernie, you know, what happened to Ernie, 
I didn't feel I didn't feel angry. I just felt very sad for him, you know, because I, I just felt that there was something at some point or another. There was something that maybe there were signs there and people either didn't care or there wasn't people, as you said, who there wasn't a system that that spotted those signs. And if maybe he'd have been caught a little bit earlier, he could have probably had a very happy life. What did what was your impression when you when you think about Ernie? Well, I think, yes, that's true. I mean, obviously, we do not know. And and um, uh, his daughter, who I've gotten to know pretty well, um, described him as normal 99 percent of the time. But he had a hair trigger ter- temper and uh, and he thought and it, it was triggered when he thought he had been wrong. And he thought he had been wronged by his uh, one of his wives, his last one, and uh, and she was trying to he basically wasn't paying child support, so she took him to court, and uh, he brought his son and and a gun into the courtroom. At that time, they didn't uh, there were no metal detectors. If you go into a courtroom in the United States today, there's a metal detector, and they didn't have those back then, and. Uh, so he brought a gun and into the courtroom, and and uh, he was fully intent on on killing his wife, and and uh, he he tried to shoot her, but he missed and and hit her attorney and killed her, twenty six year old young woman, um, uh, who who was uh, I think had been married a very short time, and and uh, you know just a tragic tragic event, and and then he killed himself. And and um, so, uh, terrible, terrible story. Uh, uh, but when you look at what happened to him growing up, um, it had to have an impact. And and uh, you know, I go into this a little bit in the book that you have uh, negative childhood experiences matter, and uh, sometimes they they come back you know, years and years later. And uh, he definitely had his share of negative childhood experiences. So what caused him to do what he did, you know, of course, we'll never know, but um, it, it didn't help the kind of childhood he had. Yeah. I, I Like I said, I don't feel, you know, anger or anything towards him. I just feel very sad for, for Ernie because I just realized that, you know, it, the nurture wasn't there. And, you know, we probably... St- go on to your next uh, the next child Robert um, oh god you know when I was reading Robert's story I was going I I thought you know the way you know the way in some happy ending sort of films you just get the kind of the, the, the breakthrough which you were looking for and you were working so hard you were looking in every military because he did do some service in the military and you were looking you know right from 1945 right up to 1969 and you were and I just waited I was turning the page as quick as I could because he's going to find something it's going to be a huge breakthrough um, and like there was a lot of you did end up getting a lot of information on Robert probably more than you probably initially expected but did you find the story about Robert? Was that was that disappointing to you? Did you feel like, oh, I wish I could have just got so much more? Oh, it was extremely discouraging. You know, I spent a long time trying to find his kids because in uh, they were mentioned in an obituary, and and I, you know, the problem is his his adopted family's last name was Anderson. Oh, it's so, so common. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of Andersons around. So anyway, uh, that made it difficult, and and uh, you know, my whole goal was when I first started this was 
you know, what if he's still alive? You know, my mother's still alive. So, you know, he was three years younger. And so I was hoping to find him and maybe reunite the two of them. And and, uh, and as I did the research, I, I found that uh, they actually, at various times in their lives, uh, didn't live very far from each other, um, like, you know, several miles away. And, uh, uh, but, you know, I, I didn't start this process. I didn't learn about him or learn his name or, or any of that until, you know, probably about 10 years ago. And he'd been dead uh, for 20 years by then. But I, I was able to talk to some family members, including his half adopted half sister the people who adopted him adopted two other children and uh, i was able to talk to one of them unfortunately she was quite a bit younger than him and didn't know him all that well um and then in the last years of his life he had uh a somebody to i, I guess a lover you know maybe um and uh, i was able to talk to her son and and he told me a lot, a lot about him. So I was able to learn a lot about Robert, but not enough. Yeah, your belief is that Robert suffered from alcoholism, and which is, you know, I think every family. And believe me, look, I'm an I'm an Irish. I have an Irish family, and you know, alcoholism in Ireland is almost a guarantee in so in all right, of the families. Right. You know, so I wasn't too um, judgmental when I read that. You know, because there might be somebody who would say, "Oh, it's typical." You know, I was turned he turned to the drink, but you know, I I can understand that that's a very easy thing because you know it's part of a social life, especially when you're a little bit an, of an outsider. Although the good thing about Robert was his parents, his his parents who adopted him, they were quite a nice family, wasn't it? It wasn't he didn't come into any situation where it was a traumatizing at all he kind of got lucky in a little way didn't he i think he did i mean they moved around a lot and and um i mean they lived during some pretty lean times in in america at that time and um i don't know how it went um toward the end of his life because uh when his father died he is not mentioned in the obituary and so uh that suggests to me that that maybe he was a disappointment to to the family. But um, you know, you know, that's a good question. Uh, was was Robert better off with his adoptive family or with Rose? And we'll never know the answer to that. But I do think everybody would have benefited if my mother and and Ernie had known Robert, had uh, gotten to know him. I, I think. They all would have benefited, and that was not made possible. Yeah, the system, of course, ensured that that it happened. And um, before we talk about your mum, when you were doing your research, were you getting angrier and angrier with the system, or is it just a case of understanding that that's the way things were then? I, I mean, I wasn't terribly surprised, but um, furious, really, uh, because you know Rose wasn't given a chance, and. Uh, and I think I used the term in the book, she was a throwaway kid. And uh, and that's how she was treated, as a throwaway kid who had no redeeming value. And um, and she, uh, want, you know, she finally got married. Uh, the only reason she was released from the institution was she got married. And, uh, and that marriage didn't last forever, but it lasted for a while. And 
and uh he was a good influence on her and a, and a very good influence on my mother and and um and they took these long trips together and and really got quite close and uh in fact when i was growing up my mom always called him dad i i never even knew that that he wasn't her biological father until later um so anyway they were quite close and and uh and rose kind of got the last laugh because she lived like 30 years after after she was released from the institution yeah did she did she have a good life in her later years or did she still have issues do you think what well, she drank, you know, she was, you know, she was an alcoholic pretty much her whole life. And, and, uh, uh, you know, I was young, so I, I didn't recognize that or really understand it too much, but, uh, she was always good to me. And, uh, and, you know, and, and it, I, I think for the most part, she was good to my mother, My she wasn't, she wasn't a real, one of these loving people that, you know, tells you they love you and all that she never did that but if you go to my mom's apartment uh there's pictures of her mom all over the place so uh, they had a they had a mother-daughter relationship let's go on to your mom because i want to end this on a, on a fairly high note because that is the best part of the book you know when i read <laughs> the last chapters and two things stuck out about your mom first of all she's a resilient woman I mean, she's amazing. And the second thing was the I'll show you optimism. You know, that was just I got that from reading about her, that she was out to be as happy as possible. You know, because some people turn around and they try and prove things. You know, they try and say, well, I'm going to be famous or I'm going to be rich. and I'm going to show you guys and I'm going to come back and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Your mum didn't do that. Your mum just set out a task to be happy and to enjoy life. And here she is still enjoying life. What a brilliant, a brilliant happy ending. And actually, what a nice finger, you know, nice two fingers to the Den establishment who said that, oh, the third generation, you know, they're still going to be as feeble-minded because, you know, that turned out she's the perfect example of that being a complete load of rubbish. Well, she had a couple things going for her. Well, first of all, she's extremely competitive. Uh, if you ever play a game with her, you kind of realize that. Um, so I think she had this ferocity that, you know, you know, helped her along the way. But also, you know, she was, her grandmother stepped in, you know, when she married my father, you know, uh, he was a wonderful man. And, and, and she had uh, aunts and uncles who helped her out. So she had a lot of people who loved her and, and, and uh, supported her and, and uh, helped raise her. And so, uh, she was lucky in that sense. I mean, she was unlucky in what happened to her early on, but she was lucky in that a lot of people came, came, you know, really stepped to the fore and helped her out. So, so that part was was really great. Um, but she's also just um, you, you can't keep her down, and and uh, she's resilient that way, and and uh, uh, she doesn't let let adversity kind of uh hold her back and and that you know that's true to this day i mean she's 101 years old <laughs> it's amazing and look this, this story where you told um about where she go on these long trips with her father i was just reading that going that's brilliant I, like you know you're supposed to live in this modern times john where you can hop on a plane and go anywhere like 
I wouldn't even think of doing that <laughs> even if I was yeah. single and had loads of money. These amazing stories about driving from, you know, Los Angeles all the way up towards the Rockies and it's just amazing. I mean, she must have, she must have like an amazing stories to tell that she probably have probably hasn't even bothered to tell you because she probably doesn't think they're that important. Have you ever thought about doing a separate book about those journeys? One thing I did with her because, uh, you know, it's hard to interview your mom. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just hard, you know, and and so I did a little bit of that, but but then I would send her question that we live, I live in Dayton, Ohio, which is, um, you know, 700 miles from where my mother lives. So I, I see her several times a year, but, you know, I don't live you know, right by her. So what I would do is I would send her questions and then she would write out answers. And, uh, you know, her eyes are failing now. She couldn't do that that today. But uh, uh, back when I was doing the research, she could. And, and she would write out these lengthy <laughs> answers. And, and uh, yeah, she has, she definitely has some amazing stories. Of course, when you're yeah. that old, when you're that old, you've probably forgotten more than you remember. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying to you because my mom passed away a couple of years ago. She was 83, and um, you know, she had two sisters, and they lived in Dublin in the 1920s and 1930s, and they grew up at that time. Um, and you know, a lot of the areas in the city at that time were tenements, and you know, and the thing about it is, you talked about this idea that going back to Mary about how she had, I think you said she uh, many kids did Mary have? Oh yeah, yeah, she had eight or well, she had nine, I think. Yeah, and one yeah. died at childbirth. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same here in Ireland with Catholic families, as I'm probably sure you'll you'll be aware of. Yeah. You know, I mean, my family alone there was seven of us, five brothers and two sisters, so. You know, it was, it's like, these are norms for us. Right, right. Every family has its issues because most of the time, you know, with those families between the 60s and 70s, there were so many of us. And, you know, as you say, we're all crowded into the same room, sleeping in the same room. And, you know, know, eventually you just get tired of people in some ways. And if you have any kind of, you know, if there's any kind of bugbear against one or each other, you know, it can be amplified. So, you know, families can have their issues all the time, but. I thought like so that never phased me. I never, I never believed that as an excuse for for issues. Do you know what I mean? Like I always thought that it's a positive, t- positive thing within your family. Um, and you know when when I look at your when I see your mum and the, the pictures and I read the story about her, um, it's like as if your mum planted a new tree in your family and this tree is really blossoming and it's catching up with the old tree and it's making that kind of shine as well. So was she very proud of you when you got the book published? Did she did she say anything about it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, well, her she can barely see now. So what she does is she takes this magnifying glass and puts it up to the print. And and uh, of course, her her complaint was, "Why is the print so small?" Oh, and it's yeah. not small. It's uh, great. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she she uh, that's how she's read most of the book. And and uh, and you know, she told me that you know some of these stories I, I knew already. And um, and of course she she did and and you know she's just a wonderful person i it, it you know i we we often put our parents on pedestals and and uh and there's no doubt i've overlooked you know some of her failings but uh she's just a she's just a wonderful i don't know a single person who doesn't like her you know in fact one of the real joys was when my granddaughter was born we we brought her up there um and uh i think she was under one at that time and and 
my mom got down on the floor and was playing with her and you know it and uh, uh every time we we come back uh we get the two of them together and you know my granddaughter now is six years old and so 95 years separate the two of those and two of those people yet yet they get along great so uh that's pretty cool uh, you stole that. I was going to tell that. I was going to say that about your 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 mother getting down on the knees and playing with the kid. That's that's yeah. just you know yeah. something. I, I I again, my mother was like that. We had a Lucy who's um she's six now, but yeah, as exactly as you said, when she was born, you know, here's my mum and and like I'm jumping to her, going, "Will you get up? You're gonna, you're not, you know, you're going to do your hip in." But you know, you can't stop them, you know. And this is the thing; it gives them a big lease of life. Uh, John, look, um, I I'm gonna gonna finish it up here. Can you can you tell me what's the best way we can get when mortals play God is it is it just looking at around the world because my podcast is mainly Ireland the UK and also in Europe but um, you know I got the book so can you tell me it's a good way the best way to get that book well the best way is probably Amazon it, it's on uh, Barnes and Noble and I, you know basically all the big booksellers you can order it online great well what what I'm going to do is I'll I'll find some links and I'll put them in the show notes for you because I really think this book is a superb read and you know anybody out there um it's not a it's not a horror story you know you, you will be laughing in it you'll be angry and you might even shed a tear as well but at the end of the day it's a story that thankfully is going to be told and and I, you know kudos to you John for for taking the time to write such a wonderful book Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. One last thing I will say is that, you know, there's a lot more in the story that we haven't covered. And I deliberately left that left that out. As I said, I want people to read the book. There's a few people we didn't talk about. And, you know, I, th- I felt the book, you know, maybe they deserve to be given more time. So read the book and get into the story and find out what it's about. And thanks for taking the time to send it to me. Because obviously, being in Ireland, I wouldn't have come across it. And I really appreciate you doing that. And and thanks for turning up today on The Comfortable Spot. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. And thanks to all of you out there for listening to The Comfortable Spot. My name is Ken, and I will be with you very soon. So take care, y'all. Bye-bye. 